an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Um, evangelization is proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, God's desire to share with us his own divine and eternal life. Evangelization is a duty and a privilege for all Christians to share Christ with others, first and foremost by the way we live, but also by sharing the Catholic faith intelligently, articulately, and winsomely. Beginning at the Second Vatican Council and continuing through each subsequent pontificate over the last 50 years, the Church has been urging those of us in Western nations especially to undertake in earnest the project of the new evangelization. So what is new about it? Here's how Blessed John Paul II describes it in his work, Redemptoris Missio. Quote, There's a situation, particularly in countries with ancient Christian roots, and occasionally in the younger churches as well, where entire groups of the baptized have lost a living sense of the faith, or even no longer consider themselves members of the church, and live a life far removed from Christ and his gospel. In this case, what is needed is a new evangelization, or a re-evangelization, end of quote. The new evangelization is simply reproposing the gospel to those who once believed, but who have lost a living sense of the Catholic faith. The situation John Paul describes should sound familiar to us, as it is the current condition in which most Western nations find themselves a post-Christian culture. In many ways, the Franciscan University of Steubenville, by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, has been so successful in contributing in our own way to this task that some have even called us the flagship university of the new evangelization in the United States. May we be worthy of that title. Yet how is evangelization even a legitimate part of higher education at all? Spend the next few minutes talking about that. Certainly to understand this requires first an understanding of the fundamental and complete harmony between faith and reason. Nothing that is true and good discovered in non-theological disciplines such as philosophy or science can ever contradict the Catholic faith properly understood. And this despite the numerous difficulties we consistently face in this regard. But about evangelization and the Catholic University in his Apostolic Constitution Ex Cordia Ecclesiae on the Catholic University, John Paul teaches this, quote, by its very nature, each Catholic university makes an important contribution to the church's work of evangelization. It is a living institutional witness to Christ and his message, so vitally important in cultures marked by secularism or where Christ and his message are still virtually unknown. Moreover, all the basic academic activities of a Catholic university are connected with and in harmony with the evangelizing mission of the church, research carried out in the light of the Christian message which puts new human discoveries at the service of individuals and society, education offered in a faith context that forms men and women capable of rational and critical judgment and conscious of the transcendent dignity of the human person, professional training that incorporates ethical values and a sense of service to individuals and to society, the dialogue with culture that makes the faith better understood, and the theological research that translates the faith into contemporary language. End of quote. The overarching goal <clears throat> described by John Paul here of a Catholic university then is institutional witness to Christ in all the basic activities of a Catholic university research, education, professional training, dialogue with the culture, and, a th and theological research. To attain this goal, first, a Catholic university must be deeply and robustly Catholic. <clears throat> and for most Catholic universities in the West, including our own, this requires or required the recovery of their Catholic identity. To achieve this in the U.S. entails going against the trend set by the infamous Lando Lake statement of 1967 of unhappy memory. For Franciscan, that happened under Father Michael Scanlon's presidency starting in 1974 
and it, and it entailed the re-evangelization of our campus community, from the students in the dorms with the introduction of households to the faculty themselves. By the time Ex Corte was promulgated in 1990, Franciscan was already a strong example of the high standards John Paul articulated. To this day, it is still passionately Catholic, dynamically orthodox, as Father Michael Scanlon liked to say, due to the grace of God, above all, and to the constant vigilance of its presidents, faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Without this living sense of the Catholic faith, as far, uh, <clears throat> a university is ill-suited to contribute to the church's work of evangelization. One of the many fruits of the recovery of dynamic orthodoxy at Franciscan is that it has served and continues to serve as a model for the many other Catholic universities who have more recently recovered or are recovering their Catholic identities, ranging from Kansas Benedictine College to the Catholic University of America. But back to evangelization. How can a Catholic university as a whole evangelize since not every academic discipline treats the faith directly? To adapt a teaching from the Second Vatican Council's document, Lumen Gentium, on the church, all truth, all truth and goodness is a preparation for the gospel. The better we understand the cosmos, man, and human society from a scientific and rational perspective, and as we share this understanding through teaching and publishing, the better disposed we are to receive the gospel and God's grace and to share it with others. Of course, the church clearly and unequivocally upholds the intrinsic worth of the liberal arts and sciences as goods in themselves. Yet she also correctly sees them as providing an important service in preparing the way for knowledge and love of Christ. For grace builds upon and perfects nature. Nature is a good in and of itself, but it is elevated and perfected by supernatural grace and truth. Supernatural revelation, for its part, can also serve reason, as Pius XII <clears throat> articulated in his encyclical Humani Generis, by, for example, showing certain boundaries in, the in, in intellectual speculation. For example, this is the issue in that encyclical, one of them, while not pronouncing on the truth or falsehood of the biological theory of evolution, the church teaches unequivocally that the human soul, which is non-material and incorruptible, cannot be a product of evolution. The human body, perhaps, and the church leaves that to the rightful autonomy of biologists to establish or refute in good faith, but not the soul. The research and teaching here at Franciscan has been and is today informed largely by the living sense of the Catholic faith, very largely. To mention only a few concrete examples, not to embarrass anyone, our neuroscientist, Dr. Stephen Samut, is pursuing a research project on rats to measure the physiological and behavioral effects of abortion on them. The biology department is conducting adult stem cell research. The chemistry and biology departments are working with students on neglected diseases. The philosophy department has produced remarkable work establishing, promoting, and defending the dignity of human personhood the Department of Accounting, Business Administration, and Economics is integrating key aspects of the Catholic intellectual tradition in forming our future business leaders to serve the common good. The university has recently adopted a new core curriculum that is more self-consciously Catholic and Franciscan and one which provides a more robust formation in the liberal arts and sciences. For years now, the university has offered majors in human life studies, humanities and Catholic culture, and honors track modeled on the great books. Robustly Catholic intellectual perspectives inform our majors in political science, pre-law, and sociology. Lastly, I cannot fail to mention our theology department, perhaps arguably the largest orthodox body of Catholic theologians and catechists in North America, both in terms of student majors and professors. My dear and esteemed colleagues in this department have educated a whole generation of well-informed and vibrant laity and priests, and one bishop, in the fundamentals of Catholic theology. <clears throat> now, with our newly approved MA Research Intensive Track in Theology, we're also helping to form the next generation of Orthodox Catholic professional theologians who will form our future priests, catechists, and professors of theology. If you ask Father Scanlon how all this happened, 
he'd tell you without missing a beat that it is fundamentally a work of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to respond to his call and to his grace. We cannot take credit for this. Preserving this patrimony requires constant vigilance and humility. Developing this work further requires profound creativity and openness to the Holy Spirit. Yesterday, the leadership and guidance of Franciscan University was officially entrusted to the capable hands of Father Sean Sheridan in getting to know him as a dear and cherished friend and colleague uh, in my department last year. I've come to see that he intimately understands and deeply appreciates the great good that God has accomplished in our university with our gifted and faithful faculty, staff, students, and alumni. My confident prayer for him is that God would continue to bless him with the wisdom, humility, stalwartness, creativity, and fidelity to God and his church necessary both to preserve our patrimony and to move us forward. He summarized his vision beautifully yesterday with the words of St. Francis. Let us begin again, brothers, for up till now we have done little or nothing. Michael, uh, I guess, was given an overview sort of of the uh, nature of Catholic higher education and uh, the new evangelization. What I'm going to do is give uh, sort of a, how that would fit in the natural sciences in my own discipline, so be a little bit more specific. And I do want to congratulate Father Sean and, and thank him and uh, Dr. Sanford and Dr. Kevin for organizing this and uh, having uh, this panel to discuss this. Uh, the biology department here at Franciscan uh, University, we're uh, in the process of hiring a new faculty member. We just placed an ad a couple days ago. And in the ad, um, it mentions that we're, uh, you know, the, our, our catchphrase that we're academically challenging and passionately Catholic. And then it lists the uh, criteria that the biology department is looking for in this new hire. And then it goes on to say that the successful candidate should support the mission of the university. And uh, so what exactly is the mission of the university? Uh, Father Sean uh, spent a good deal of time yesterday in his talk elaborating on this, and I confess I looked at it on Wednesday for the first time since 13 years ago when I applied and had to write a statement about the mission of the university, um, and uh, there's a lot in there to get out of it. I recommend looking at it, but what really jumped out at me was at the end of the mission statement, there's a quote from Ex Corde that uh, sort of animates what the mission is all about. And this quote says, the mission that the church with great hope entrusts to Catholic universities holds a cultural and religious meaning of vital importance because it concerns the very future of humanity. And it really struck me, the very future of humanity. How is it that the university has such a vital role? Right? And personally to me, how is it that a science department at Franciscan has a role uh, that it concerns the very future of humanity. Um, and a related question there with that is, is another way to approach it. What is it that should distinguish a Catholic biology, chemistry, or physics department that would make it distinct from one that you would find at a secular university? Um, now, I think the large part of the answer can be found in that uh, essential aspect of a Catholic university that is sort of the, the theme of this symposium, that, Michael mentioned already, and it's been mentioned by many of the other speakers, and that is that uh, the Catholic University is going to contribute important work to the church's work of evangelization. And in today's day and age, that is synonymous with re-evangelizing re a culture that has really lost its sense of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Now, as a biologist, um, I could easily uh, just shirk this responsibility, and I'm very good at doing that. Uh, I could just say, hey, you know what? I'm here to teach physiology to nursing students, and I'm here to teach physiology to pre-health students, and there's plenty of good professors over there in catechetics that do the work of evangelization um, and re-evangelizing the culture. Um, but if the university is to be true to the mission, and if I'm to be true to my vocation, um, and those in the natural sciences here at Franciscan are to be true to their vocation. Uh, we have to bring the good news into all the strata of humanity. Um, and for me personally and those in the natural sciences, that particularly includes the strata of medicine and biological research. Uh, 
and, and they're, um, how do I do that and how do we do that in practice then? And I obviously, you know, I'm not going to be, well, uh, sitting in the middle of the lab or having, telling their students that go on to the ER, doctors and nurses to just start quoting John 10 and 11 in the middle of the ER. Uh, what are they going to do in practice? And I, again, go back to ex corde, and this is one of my favorite quotes there, because this is how um, he, uh, Pope John Paul um, saw or, 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 or directed this sort of evangelistic output within different disciplines. And he says um, that the way you do it is through affecting and, as it were, upsetting through the power of the gospel, humanity's criteria of judgment, determining values, points of interest, lines of thought, sources of inspiration, and models of life, which are in contrast with the word of God and the plan of salvation. And there's plenty out there in the life sciences in particular. Uh, there are many judgments and lines of thought that need to be upset, right? From the manipulation of life in its most nascent stages to the discarding of life in its most vulnerable stages, the genetic and, uh, to the genetic and pharmacological modification of life at all of its stages. These are just, just a few issues. And these are all issues that I, I firmly believe are going to, uh, or that do concern the very future of humanity. And what, do, uh, what type of society are we going to be? Are we going to be a society that cherishes the beauty and goodness of all life, or will we be a society that allows the strong to manipulate the weak and the disadvantaged to be treated as biological commodities? The answer to that question is going to be determined by society as a whole, but I think that there is a very particular um, influence that scientists, and medical professionals are going to have in that strata. And that we here at Franciscan, you know, what is the, the heart of our mission is to transform the culture within that particular sphere by preparing our students to do that and as faculty members engaging the culture upon those issues. Right? So when I think of how this is done in practice, how do we engage the culture on those issues, there are three particular ways that come to mind of how the natural science department can live up to this, this calling, okay? Uh, now, the first is uh, relatively obvious, I think, is to prepare our students to excel, right? Um, and I was delighted um, yesterday when Father Sean started talking about during his, his uh, inauguration uh, speech about the students that we have doing research in the labs with us. They're doing real-world research. They're getting this first hands-on experience, and that's just one, one way that that's done. But the, the whole point of, of doing these things and evaluating how are we preparing our students, how can we better prepare our students, is so that we can send our students out to be the leaders in their medical school classes. So they can be the leaders in their graduate school classes. Not out of some uh, sorts of pride for us, although I, we do feel good about that, but it's not, that's not the, what's animating us. What's animating us is we want them to be as prepared as they can because evangelization requires excellence. Without excellence, you're not going to be a good evangelist. Uh, if you look, uh, you know, we had a uh, alumni, uh, Dr. Dave Bourne, that came back uh, last uh, Friday. Who uh, he is an NFP-only doctor, and he does is uh, a medical director at, at uh, crisis pregnancy clinics. And uh, you know, being an NFP-only doctor is very countercultural. He was uh, the chief resident uh, for family practice at the, during his residency, and he um, was someone that the other residents looked up to because he was extremely competent. And so when he has a conversation with another doctor about why he does NFP, they will listen to him, as opposed to the resident who, you know, botches every other case and wants to talk to somebody about NFP, they're not going to listen to him. And what we want is our students to have the best preparation so they can use all their gifts and talents for the new evangelization. Um, now the second thing that uh, as, a, as a Catholic science department is that we want to engage in research that, I mean there's all different types of biological research you can pick and most of it is good. Uh, but we want to pick uh, research that does uh, a few things. One, to help build up the cultural life. And that's why we have a number of faculty now on our staff that work with adult stem cell research, looking and using that as a, pro you know, I, I think John Garvey talked about uh, rather than saying no, we need to have a yes. And you don't want to say, no, you can't do adults, you can't work with embryonic stem cells. You want to show, hey, this is the vision, this is the positive vision here that the Catholic 
uh, research in healthcare goes, and that, that to contribute to that with uh, ethical stem cell treatments. And the second was Dr. Rohde's work with neglected diseases, the call of St. Francis to be with the leopard, to go out and help the less fortunate, those that can't or lack the ability to help themselves, so these uh, diarrheal diseases, malaria uh, diseases in Africa, that uh, there are no good medications to, to treat these, these individuals. And so picking the research that is not only going to help the students excel, but also is part and parcel of both our Franciscan and our Catholic mission is, is essential. The third, and, and this is uh, just as important, I'm not ranking these in sort of order of importance, but the third is to ensure our faculty and students preserve the sense, uh, and again, I'll quote, escorted, the sense of the transcendence of the human person over the world and of God over the human person, end quote. And, and do that so they can fully grasp and articulate the ethical and moral implications both of the methods of science and of its discovery. So science is um, a servant to humanity rather than the other way around. Now, how do we do this? Right, that one, uh, the way we do this in the sciences is ship them over to Dr. Crosby's philosophy class. <laughs> and then when they come back, we ship them over and tell them to take another one. Right? And then we send them over to Dr. Bergman's and Dr. Cirillo's theology class. We have to be careful because we don't want them to switch majors, so we don't let them go over that much. Right? <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is the limit to how much we... But uh, they come out now prepared not only to um, engage their colleagues on a medical and scientific level, but to have a deep understanding of what it means to help and to build the human person rather than just the human body. Um, and we also have just established, and we're starting this uh, semester, a science and faith lecture series to do the same thing, to examine these issues, um, the relationship between ethics, morality, and, and modern science. Uh, next week, we're going to have a, a Hungarian uh, scientist, uh, Tomas Roska, is one of the leading scientists in, in Europe who will be coming um, to speak not only on his work, but also maintaining the Catholic identity uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, and then in a month, we'll have Dr. Mark Regnerus, who's um, done um, some excellent work, both with looking from a social science perspective on gay parenting and on how the cost of sex affects sexual behavior and that how the cost of sex changes with contraception and, and abortion and so forth. So uh, those are the types of things that, 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 that we want to do to ensure that, that third thing. So the, the three things are cultivating excellence in our students, engaging research that aids the human condition and builds the culture of life, and ensuring students gain a sound grounding in solid ethical and moral reasoning. And so we hope we can find a faculty member uh, come in and can do all those. If you have any ideas uh, and know any good Catholic <laughs> biologists out there that's looking for a job, let me know. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ann Hendershot, and I teach in the sociology department, but I also head up the new Veritas Center. And I was so thrilled to hear in Bishop Momforton's wonderful address last night that he's asked us to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. I love, I just absolutely loved that line where he gave us that commission to be, um, to be representatives of Jesus Christ. Because it made me think, I liked it especially because it, I'm a new faculty member here, and it's the reason I came here. Because I do think Franciscans are already doing that. I mean, not every day we think about it, not every, and we fall short, I know I certainly do. Um, but that's what we should be striving to be, is representatives of Jesus Christ. And, I really enjoyed hearing him say that. And it's really been the theme that's woven throughout all of the presentations today. And it's an important part of the new evangelization. Um, that whole idea of what would Jesus do and how would he teach? And he would accept everybody, but he would also say the uncomfortable truths that need to be said. And that's what I'm good at sometimes. <laughs> I do say the uncomfortable truths. Because I think if you love someone and they're doing something wrong, it's not being judgmental. It's just you're pointing out that that's not the way to get to heaven. And you can be viewed as a nag. You can say it as best as you can. But sometimes those truths have to be done. And Blessed John Paul said that in Ex Corde. He said that the basic mission of a university is a continuous quest for the truth, the truth of Jesus Christ as our Savior. Pope John Paul also cautioned us that a Catholic university 
must have the courage to speak uncomfortable truths which do not always please public opinion but are necessary to safeguard the authentic good of society. It's easier said than done, I know that, because I know how difficult it is to work at a university, a Catholic university, and you're the only one speaking the uncomfortable truths. It gets very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't say that I had any courage, because I didn't really speak uncomfortable truths until I had tenure, and I don't think it was coincidental. <laughs> I have to admit, to be like Jesus, I have to tell the truth because this is the very tough center. But in, up till 2002, I was doing very straightforward sociology research, urban studies. Doing, I got a grant from HUD to study how we could revitalize neighborhoods in San Diego. So I was doing all the political correct things, but I saw myself as doing the kind of work that Jesus would want us to do. But everybody else would define that as very secular work. And so it was a three-year HUD grant, and it was done. I was very happy. We had a community partnership uh, center. We got $500,000 from HUD to build this center to bring wonderful services. And I was quite a hero on my campus, I must say. You know, because when you help the poor, that's the only thing in social justice that's valued on many social on Catholic campuses. And if you're helping the poor, I see that as God's work, but they see that as social justice, and that can be defined on some Catholic campuses. Social justice can be defined as helping women have access to full reproductive rights, helping gay couples who love each other have access to same-sex marriage. That's the way social justice has been defined. Well, in 2002, it was well after I had tenure, um, but I decided to write a book because I thought that the truth was not being told. And I wrote a book, I had written two before, but they weren't very courageous books. This one was kind of courageous, although I had tenure, so I remind you that <laughs> how courageous is it? I wrote a book called The Politics of Deviance, and it was completely inspired by blessed John Paul, completely. His veritatis splendor, when he says, we need to speak the truth. And what it did is chapter by chapter, trying to tell the truth about reproductive rights and the gay movement, the gay liberation movement that I knew would end up in same-sex marriage. I knew that in 2002. I wrote a chapter about the overuse of medication on children, ADHD. Every chapter was a different form of deviance that is no longer deviant. Abortion is no longer something that's said in a hus whisper. Now it's celebrated. A New York Times article of a young couple that were just married, a big sports hero, a basketball player from Orlando, he and his bride were pictured in the New York Times saying they got through hard times, and the abortion that she got brought them closer together. And I thought, how did this happen? And that's just recently in the New York Times. It's something that they sort of celebrated. It brought them closer together, and they were happy they did that because it showed, she showed her love for him by doing that, and they've published that in the New York Times. So my book was written well before that. That was just a few months ago, or actually it was a month ago that was in the paper. We talked about it in our sociology class because we do talk about those things in sociology at Franciscan, not on every campus, but here we do. And we talked about how, how did deviance become so defined down that sin no longer exists? Well, the Veritas Center is going to be doing that every day, bringing these uncomfortable truths, and comfortable truths, too. We'll be celebrating the good news, because that's what the new evangelization is. And we'll be bringing it, hopefully, into the public square through our articles. We've got workshops planned. Um, the Veritas Center for Ethics and Public Life is going to provide a way to help Franciscan faculty members address these kinds of truths and bring them to the public square so that the New York Times isn't just celebrating abortion. We might be able to get into the New York Times. I have not been successful in doing that yet. But we would, our goal is to try to infiltrate these papers with the truth. The Wall Street Journal is open to our writing already. And there are many papers, the New York Post um, will be publishing our work, but our goal is to engage with the culture 
bringing the truth in by publishing in, in these magazines, newspapers, secular and Catholic. We want to move beyond the Catholic press whenever we can. Our primary goal is to bring faithful Catholic scholarly reflection to crucial ethical questions in contemporary culture in the areas of business, law, politics, social services, the arts, education. Our only criteria, we will have faculty associates publishing within our center, and our only criteria to publish within our center. You don't have to agree with my conservative politics. You have to agree with the magisterium. That's the only requirement. We can't have the Veritas Center publishing in the public square anything that is not completely truth. So the Veritas Center name was purposeful. I can't say I was courageous enough to put Veritatis Splendor in my Politics of Deviance book, even though it was inspired. You won't really even see the word Catholic in my book, even though it was inspired and Catholic teachings are woven for, throughout that. It's now a decade old. Um, but in the Veritas Center, we wanted truth right up front. And it was purposeful, chosen not out of arrogance that we think we know the truth, but rather to underscore the belief that the truth is as it has been revealed to us through the Catholic Church, that we can find that and we can proclaim that. And it'll always be our foundation. We were inspired by his exhortation, Pope John, uh, in his exhortation in, in Veritatis Splendor, that human freedom must be closely connected to the truth. We are committed to upholding the natural moral law in order to avoid the suppression of legitimate freedom or what Pope Emeritus Benedict called the dictatorship of relativism. Catholic social teaching will be a particular reference point for our efforts in the center in an attempt to provide alternatives to the usual secular analysis in many of the facets of culture. Toward that goal, we are committed to clarifying and disseminating Catholic moral and social teachings through research writing. We're going to have a conference in April on religious liberty, it'll be our inaugural. It'll really be the launch for the center. Steve Crayson is heading that up. He's got 30 years of putting on conferences, so it's going to be wonderful. We will do this through coupling traditional discipline-based scholarship, so we're not giving up the journal writing and the academic research. We just want to make it readable. <laughs> because a lot of people don't read ac academic journals. I know that's a shock to some of my colleagues. But they just don't. <laughs> so we'll couple traditional discipline based with interdisciplinary work in the popular press. We'll coordinate a faculty writing program with workshops, sharing ideas, sharing names of publishers, sharing names of editors to help people bring their expertise to the public square to truly become ambassadors of Christ. by echoing um, Mike Cirillo's um, words to uh, Father Fonchari, and I really appreciate the uh, way you built into your inauguration this academic conference that sends out an important message about uh, the kind of presidency you want to have. And I thank you very much for this academic dimension that you've added to the inauguration. Now, um, I, as you might suspect, being the uh, professor of philosophy uh, will focus my remarks on the way in which the philosophers here at Franciscan contribute to evangelization. And in order to collect my thoughts on uh, these remarks, I went back to the great encyclical of John Paul, Fides et Ratio, on faith and reason. This um, papal teaching of John Paul is a treasury of wisdom regarding faith and reason. I have the impression we've hardly begun to mine the depths of all that John Paul gives us in that encyclical. And as I read through the encyclical on faith and reason again, I was struck by this. The Pope is trying to help us recover our sense for the dignity and power and range of human reason. He, he's speaking to people who no longer trust human reason, 
who expect little from it. And in the encyclical, he's trying to restore their confidence in it. This puts John Paul in a position very different from that of earlier popes. In earlier ages of the church, the popes often had to take a different approach. They had to warn reason not to exceed its bounds, not to intrude into the realm of faith. But at the end of the 20th century, John Paul had to do almost the opposite. He had to warn against a certain false humility uh, and warn reason against a false humility about its powers and warn it against failing to lend any support at all to faith. And so he says in the encyclical, and I quote this sentence, with a false modesty, people rest content with partial and provisional truths no longer seeking to ask radical questions about the meaning and ultimate foundation of human personal and social existence. End of that quote. And in another place in the encyclical, he speaks of the idea of some postmodernist philosophers that, and I quote again, the time of certainties is irrevocably past, and the human being must now learn to live in a horizon of total absence of meaning where everything is provisional and ephemeral. And of that quote. Now you might at first think that this postmodern situation is ideal for evangelization. You might think, well, if all of our rational conceptions are provisional and ephemeral, then we urgently need the revealed word of God, which is the very opposite of provisional and ephemeral. It alone can give us the certainty that we've lost uh, and that we seek. And then we would say to the world, repent and believe the gospel so that you can find the anchor of existence that is so painfully absent from your postmodern life. But appealing as that kind of evangelization may be, the idea of giving up on reason so as to make room for faith is not the Catholic way. In fact, this is condemned in the encyclical under the name of fideism, from fides, faith, which refers to a kind of faith that is deformed by being starved of any rational foundation. Here's one of the things that John Paul says about fideism in the encyclical. Deprived of reason, faith has stressed feeling and experience, and so run the risk of no longer being a universal proposition. End of quote. So the truths of Revelation no longer um, claim universality, but are more expressed in terms of my subjective religious experience. You may remember the famous opening sentence of this encyclical on faith and reason. Uh, John Paul says that faith and reason are like two wings on which the human mind ascends to the truth. And so we can say a faith deprived of reason is like a bird trying to fly with only one wing. Now, here is where I see the opportunity of us philosophers to contribute to the church's work of evangelization. We can, in our teaching and writing, help to restore confidence in the power of reason. We can show our students that reason is not limited to so-called instrumental reason, the reason that just devises means and ends and expresses itself in technological accomplishments, but that there is also what John Paul called a sapiential dimension of reason, from the Latin sapientia, wisdom. Uh, he meant uh, that there is a reason that uh, extends even to issues of good uh, and of ultimate meaning. And so by helping to recover this sapiential power of wisdom, we can help the proclamation of the church to go forth with both wings. Now, this does not just mean that 
philosophy supplies apologetic arguments for believers. That's very important too, the whole work of Christian apologetics. But this recovering the sapiential power of reason goes deeper. Here are some of the ways in which we philosophers can support the evangelistic mission of the church precisely through our work in philosophy. First of all, we have to take care to avoid fideism ourselves. We must never present an argument as a work of reason when it's really, in fact, supported by our faith. This is the worst fideism, the fideism that corrupts even philosophy. We must show that reason best collaborates with faith when it preserves what John Paul in the encyclical calls its rightly understood autonomy. And we also have to resist another temptation, that is the temptation to present to our students just the history of philosophy or just the teachings of the great philosophers. We have to be mindful of the principle of St. Thomas Aquinas that the study of philosophy is not about knowing what philosophers have thought but about coming to know the truth of things. In the encyclical, John Paul talks about the unfortunate way in which philosophy has been marginalized in our times. That is, it's become not some kind of uh, wisdom, fundamental human wisdom, but it's become just one specialist discipline among many others. And this marginalization of uh, philosophy is just what results when philosophers become mere historians or mere commentators and do not directly grapple with the great questions of philosophy. So we have to be not just spectators of the great tradition of Christian philosophy, but must be active participants in it if we are going to display in our own work this full range of human reason. And there's something else, and this is the last point that we philosophers must learn to do. We have to know how to talk to unbelievers. If what we say is understood only by fellow believers and is unintelligible to those outside the household of faith, then we are failing to be real voices of reason because the particular evangelistic power of philosophical reason lies in the fact that it addresses believers and non-believers alike. We have first to listen to what non-believers are saying. We have to find the elements of truth in their philosophies. We have to understand the legitimate concerns that move them. Then we can go on and offer the gospel to them, but only on the basis of first giving them a sympathetic hearing. And in this way, we can achieve what John Paul envisioned in Excordia Ecclesiae when he said in a line that I've always been particularly fascinated by that a Catholic university, quote, is a primary and privileged place for a fruitful dialogue between the gospel and culture, end of that quote. But fideism cannot conduct that dialogue. It takes reason as well in this fruitful dialogue that John Paul envisions is part, an important part, of the church's mission of evangelization. And so we Christian philosophers serve this mission by reviving, trying, according to our lights, um, uh, to revive this full sapiential power. Can I be heard? All right. I am alive. Okay. It's my pulse. Um, I knew that on, on this panel uh, we'd have many discussions, and we've also had some talks in the, in the previous uh, 18 hours or so that have given an overview of the issue of the new evangelization and the role of the Catholic University. So in my remarks, I decided to choose something very particular 
um, uh, to deal with a, a very uh, a nuts and bolts kind of issue that I think is pertinent to uh, the role of the university in the new evangelization, and that is the mandatum, the, the way that approval is granted by the church for uh, teachers of theology in Catholic institutions. And I have to bow to uh, Father Sean's much greater uh, uh, knowledge of canon law, and he, I'm afraid I'm going to give these remarks, and he's going to have to take me aside afterwards and <laughs> say, shouldn't have said that. <laughs> so, so. I'm a Bible scholar, not a canon lawyer, so um, so take what I say with a grain of salt, but I'm going to, um, yeah, or a whole salt lick as the case may be, but um, I'm going to be t- talking about the, the role of the university in the new evangelization and the mandatum. Now, in a discussion of the role of Catholic universities in the new evangelization, special attention needs to be paid to the teaching of theology within the university curriculum. University teachers of theology play a crucial role within the evangelizing mission of the whole church. Catholic universities shape the mind of the church. In particular, excuse me, in particular, they form the intellectual leadership of the church for the next generation. It is only in the Catholic university setting that it is possible to explore certain questions relevant to the explanation and defense of the faith in the public square. For example, the church's teachings on life issues, on marriage and contraception, on the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the way of salvation for all persons, on the natural law, on the infallibility of the church, the Pope, and the scriptures. Okay? All those issues are enormously controversial and vehemently opposed by contemporary intellectual culture. And it's not possible adequately to form Catholic young people to explain and defend these teachings in Catholic secondary schools alone, much less in the parish setting. Many parishes, in fact, do not have any educational program for secondary school students. And sometimes very little is offered even for adults in terms of education within the parish. Therefore, the Catholic university is the privileged and appropriate place for the intellectual leaders of the church to be trained for the difficult task of articulating and defending the teaching of the church in the public square. So just to summarize what I've just said there, the intellectual forces that we're facing in our culture are much too complicated uh, to be dealt with at the high school level or the parish level. And to expect that our parish priests or high school religion teachers are going to be able to deal with all the issues that the young Catholic is going to have to face in this culture without the help of the higher level education that we're able to do at the university is is unrealistic. The university has to play its role to produce a generation of Catholic leadership that uh, is up to arguing, dealing expounding these issues in the public square. So, it's of the utmost importance that those who teach the theological disciplines within the Catholic universities are, in fact, teaching students to articulate and defend Catholic doctrine rather than teaching their own opinions or even what is contrary to the church's faith. Now, one of the instruments currently employed to ensure that theologians are teaching the faith of the church and not against the faith is properly called the mandatum. The mandatum is, I quote, fundamentally an acknowledgement by the church authority that a Catholic professor of a theological discipline is teaching within the full communion of the Catholic church. This mandatum generally takes the form of a letter from the local bishop to the theologian in question recognizing that he or she teaches in communion with the church. Canon law requires that any Catholic teaching a theological discipline within a Catholic institution of higher education must have a mandatum. So I have a mandatum, and uh, so do all the other uh, professors of theology uh, at Franciscan uh, University. Um, Under the guidelines adopted by the USCCB, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and confirmed by the Holy See as particular law for the church in the United States, 
It is, frankly, relatively easy for a theologian to request and receive a mandatum. The guidelines of the USCCB are very concerned to protect the rights and freedoms of the theologian. The bishop must presume the good faith of the intentions of the theologian and the fidelity of his teaching unless proven otherwise. Therefore, the mandatum must be granted unless there is, a quote, detailed and specific reasons for the bishop to think otherwise. The canonical guidelines in force in the U.S. are primarily concerned to protect the rights of the theologian, and the primary harm to be avoided is the bishop's unjust withdrawal or refusal to grant the mandatum. Again, okay, I, I speak from experience as one who has requested and received a mandatum, and I was surprised at how easy the process was. Um, the bishop took my word that uh, I was teaching a community with the church, and uh, we had a short conversation uh, of pleasantries, and uh, then I was issued a memo uh, authorizing me to, uh, to teach. And um, le- let me contrast that with what was required to, re- to, re- uh, to attain certification for safe child environment uh, procedures, okay? <laughs> Uh, nobody took my word for it that, uh, that I did not have a criminal record. Okay? I applied to the diocese. They did a background check on me. Uh, then I met with a representative of the diocese, and then I went through training. Okay? So it was much easier for me to receive authorization to teach theology than it was to get safe child um, certification. I'm not saying by any means that it should be easy to receive safe child certification. I think that that process was good, but I just think we ought to ponder that that reality that it's uh, so easily accomplished um, to uh, receive this authorization uh, to teach theology, especially in light of what our Lord says uh, about um, should anyone should anyone lead uh, one of these little ones who believe in me astray. You know, our Lord says one of these uncomfortable truths that Anne was talking of. Um, you know, a millstone should be hung around that person's neck, or it would be better that a millstone was hung around their neck and cast into the depths of the sea. So our Lord uses a very striking statement about the gravity of being placed in the position of spiritual instruction of the young. So these are just some things that we should ponder. Um, It occurs to me that there is a party whose rights are not discussed in the current guidelines for the bestowal of the mandatum, and that party is the student. Um, It is admirable to protect the rights of the theologian against possible abuse of those rights in canon law. At the same time as a church, I propose that we ask ourselves some questions about the rights of the Catholic student. Number one, does the Catholic student at a Catholic institution of higher learning, have a right to be instructed in authentic church teaching? That's an interesting question. Do they have a right to be instructed in authentic church teaching? Secondly, does the Catholic student have a right to know whether his instructor is teaching authentic doctrine and whether the instructor is in communion with the church? I have been at an institution where it was difficult to discover whether your professor had a mandatum or not, for example. Um, Point three, since within the student-teacher relationship, the student is without authority and is therefore vulnerable, what norms should be adopted to protect the rights of the Catholic student to receive sound instruction? It's a biblical and Catholic principle of moral teaching that within relationships that involve authority, the rights of the vulnerable must be protected. And so in the classic moral teaching of the Old Testament, in in which uh, I am a specialist, the trio of the orphan, the widow, and the stranger are of constant concern because these classes of people were without authority and legal standing in society. And within a university environment, the student is often, uh, so to speak, at the mercy of the professor. There's little recourse when you're at a student in the university environment. Now, in the current guidelines for the mandatum, the theologian is presumed to be the vulnerable party whose right to mandatum must be protected against the possible abuse of a bishop's authority. 
However, I would propose that another relationship needs to be pondered by the church, and that's the theologian-student relationship. We need to ask what the right of the student is to receive authentic Catholic teaching at a Catholic-identified institution. And then further, we should ask whether there are adequate norms in place in church law, including the procedures concerning the granting of the modatum, that ensures the protection of the rights of the Catholic student. Thank you. to address one another's talks. Uh, it's my prerogative and pleasure to, to try and pull together some of the disparate threads we've been hearing over the weekend, and in particular from this panel, and I thank my colleagues for their very excellent presentations. Um, as I, I think about the challenge that we've heard, I think there's a couple of points that come through very strongly. The first of those is that I think we here at, Un at Franciscan are unequivocally grateful for the foundation that has been built for us by so many of our prior colleagues, by so many previous administrators. And I thought Father Sean was very uh, profound and, and right to begin with his talk yesterday, talking about the foundation that was built previously. Because you can't build higher, you can't improve more if you haven't reached that point. So as we think about the future of the university in terms of the new evangelization, we have to both acknowledge how far we've come, how successful we've been, and the, the honors we've earned in the new evangelization and so many success stories. Uh, that said, I shared with the students and faculty at the opening convocation this year my own personal experience, I don't know and will not be asking about your reconciliation experiences, um, but my own personal experiences is even when I go into the confessional and report some progress in these sins that I've been struggling with and these challenges that I'm facing, rarely does, I'll be frank and say Father Gregory, say to me, oh, great, Dan, you've done enough, you know, go away, you're fine. <laughs> you know, that's not the experience of individuals. I don't think that's the experience of institutions. Uh, the Lord, I think, has, has called this university to great things. In the new evangelization, I think it's accomplished so much, but at the same time, I think we're poised for a new era to address even greater challenges for the future. So that's the first point I would like to make. The second point is that as you listen to my colleagues' talks, I think it's very clear that faculty have a central role, even as, as you think about Dr. Keegler's comments, even those who are not teaching theology, and as Dr. Crosby pointed out, there are other avenues to evangelize, other ways that we approach the topic other ways that we provide this, and I'm going to fall back upon a very simple rubric uh, that faculty use both to hire new faculty, because the question is how do we advance, how do we improve our evangelization, and that we use the simple rubric of looking when we hire and when we assess ourselves every year. Each faculty member here at Franciscan does a self-assessment to start our merit process, and they look at three things. They look at their scholarship, they look at their teaching, and they look at their service. Now those are not in and of themselves unusual for a university. Those are the same three categories most universities utilize. But what I find unique is what you find inside of those categories here at Franciscan, which really do evangelize not only our students, but I would argue one another and the community around us. So let's start by thinking about some of the things we've been told about the scholarship. Clearly, by having the mandatum, we are guaranteeing the orthodoxy as best we can of our Catholic thought. We also try and guarantee that in the hiring process. Uh, we also look very carefully at how that inspiration, and I thought President Garvey's talk this morning was, made some beautiful analogies to point that out, at how sometimes inspiration in other fields can affect and bring about the truth of the faith and demonstrate that. And we talk about some of the very purposeful things our scientists are doing that Dr. Keebler had mentioned, the stem cell research, the research on rare and neglected diseases, 
research on the depressionary effects of abortion. All of these things are examples of where faculty are taking their faith and using them to inspire the questions they analyze, the, the challenges in these particular areas they're interested in because of their faith, and this adds to the evangelization. I think it is a future challenge for this university to also evangelize our disciplines. It may seem an unconquerable mountain given the state of the academy in, the, in America today and in the world today, but when we do our academic writings, we are addressing Catholic topics, we are bringing in our faith to this, and I think very profoundly when we talk about scholarship, we have to consider what uh, Anne Hendershot, Dr. Hendershot was saying, that more and more it's so vital that these strong Catholic voices that we have here at the university write in the public square and address these issues, because we can touch so many more and I think the next challenge is to get our students as well out there writing with our faculty, and that's one of the reasons I think Anna is going to be a great help here, because she has co-authored in the past with her students and taught them how to be better writers, and I think many of us here already attended one of her workshops. It, it is a different skill uh, than writing academically. The teaching, I think, also is a profound form of evangelization because it's not only the subjects we're teaching, we're how, it's how we teaching. When a chemist or a biologist takes the time to pray with his or her students prior to class, that means something, that says something about who they are and how their life is integrated. So I think, again, we can do more, we, we should do more. Uh, I'd like to find out more about what the, class, the faculty are doing in their classrooms but having to address this when they're hired, just like Dr. Keebler did 13 years ago and myself quite a bit more recently, um, is an important part of who we are, to ask the faculty, how will your faith affect your teaching, I think is a fair question. I think it profoundly does, because so much of what each of us knows in our lives, we didn't just learn through our reason, although reason is a perfectly legitimate and very powerful way of learning, one our students have to know to address the culture, but what our faculty know is both what they brought in from their reason and from their faith. Finally, and I think this is the category that gets most overlooked about what faculty do, is the category of service. Um, where I previously taught, we had what we call a 40-40-20 scale, which meant 40% of your evaluation was, was your scholarship, 40% was your teaching, and 20% was sort of the add-in, and since everyone could list something they did in the community, it didn't really statistically matter. Here, I think it is profound when we look at the effects of our faculty and our staff, and I'll take it one step further, their families upon the community. Uh, the impact they have out there is just tremendous. Uh, there are so many examples, and. I just am awed sometimes when I go through the faculty merit evaluations when they talk about I mean, a, a doctored chair of the history department singing in her local church, church choir. I mean, that sends a witness of what matters to her. Uh, we have a mathematician who's entering the diaconate. We have a theologian who is a deacon. We have a staff member who's a deacon. I mean, so much of this is showing to the community, evangelizing it, St. Francis, at least the quote attributed so often to him, to him is uh, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. The things our faculty members and our staff are doing in the community I think is really transformative. It helps one another grow. We challenge one another in this sense and I think that's an important part of our continuing mission of the, of the university. But I also think I see, and I'm going to take a moment to single out, when I meet, and this to me is, is so amazing, I have three wonderful children, I love them, very successful, uh, very bright, articulate, but I also meet so many faculty and staff kids uh, around campus. They are wonderful examples of what young Christians, Catholics ought to be, and they say so much about the lives our faculty and our staff are living not only here at the university during the workday, but what's happening in, in their home lives. Um, and I think, uh, I'll use my own example, I'm embarrassed my beautiful bride of 30 years, 
Um, she's working in the community to help women who are underprivileged particularly, but to help women who have difficult pregnancies, to bring those pregnancies to fruition, to live these, these sorts of challenges, again, is how a community breathes its own charisma, its own charism into the life of the world around it. So I just want to, I guess, uh, before I turn it over to say, I think this university has done an amazing lot and we're so grateful to all of those who started us on this path, to all the past presidents. But as I listened yesterday, I couldn't help be excited about our future. It's, it's frightening, it's challenging, we know that, but I think we're at a point where we're really ready for the ideas that Father Sean is, is asking us to consider. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.